as I get to launch into this new series with you about things we fight about and talk with you today about great expectations, the point of view of parents and what we hope and want for our kids. Now, when we talk about parenting, I understand that some of you are already like me, an old guy, a grandpa, feeling a little bit off the hook. You know, whatever damage or good I was going to do is pretty much done. You know, some of you there don't vote on it, but you know what I'm talking about here. And others of you are saying, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a person with a kid. I'm not sure I'm ever going to have a kid. And because as a community, we're a really different group of people. I mean, we come from different places. As a group, we're different too, but... But there's students that are here today, and there's single adults, and they're single again, and there's single parents, and there's couples without kids, couples with kids. Some of you, like me, are grandparents. Some are great-grandparents. And so what does the talk about parenting have to do with the whole community? Well, I think a whole lot. In fact, there's three kinds of application today. The primary point of view that I'm going to bring to the talk is the point of view of a parent. For, for those of you that right now have kids in your home that you're raising, this is direct application for you. But the two sub-stories that are equally true that touch all of us are, one is we're a part of a community that is called with a mission to love kids here, near, and far. And all of us together, maybe even without direct parental responsibility for a child or more, indirectly support and help parents as they love their kids. So all of us are engaged. And maybe you're an older sibling or an aunt or, or an uncle today, but all of us have those faces that come to mind of those children in our lives that we're a part of a community of providing support for. And the third application that's true for all of us is that we are all God's children. And what we discover is that the only perfect parent that has ever existed is God. And what we learn primarily about being good parents and raising up kids in this community, we learn from how he parents us. So I'm going to invite you today to look at several passages in the book of uh, Ephesians. We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, which is the tipping point of this book. It's like a hinge on a door. The first three chapters deal with the theology, the belief, our understanding about God and who he is and what he's done and the implications for our lives in fact, this fall, Ann and I are going to do a series through the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3. We're going to talk about the theological issues. And then on this hinge, he moves over into, so what are the implications for our lives? If God really is your father, then what does that mean for how we might live? Notice the very first verse there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and loving. When I was born, long time ago, students, it was a long time ago, I know. When I was born, I was given the last name Roth. And I know that my mom and my dad were going to give me that name irrevocably. I was going to be a Roth kid regardless of what I did, didn't do, how I behaved, misbehaved, what I turned out to be or not. I was going to be a Roth I'm a Roth family kid. But I know that my parents also aspired that I would grow up and I would act like a Roth. There were certain things the Roth family held as values and things that we didn't, didn't do, and they brought me up in an environment where I would share those values. When Jordan and Hillary, our kids, were born, we gave them the name Roth, and we hoped that they would grow up and they would act like this identity that they had. 
Far beyond that, God has given you a fundamental identity. God's kid. And as God's child, the apostle Paul says, based upon your identity, I am begging you, I am urging you to act like this name you've been given. God's daughter, God's son. And the rest of the book, chapters four, five, and six, are very practical, real life instructions on how to live up to this high calling of God's kid. And it's from that that we learn how the greatest parent of all parents us and how we can learn to be good parents and nurture of kids as well. And so he talks about some very practical things and then we spill into chapter five. Verse one says this, follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. So it's his example that primarily models for us the way in our serving successive generations in their growing up and being raised. And then in chapter six, we come to this amazing summary verse that most parents have heard of. And notice it with me there in chapter six, verse four says, now fathers, by the way, let's just get it out of the way. Dan, you and I and all the other dads, we respond well to pain, don't we? I tell, you, you've heard me say, if I've forgotten your name, I'd say, just kick me hard in the shin. I respond well to pain. Something about the way we're wired. It jogs our minds somehow. And he just kind of slaps the guy's father's right up in the side of the head here and says, yeah, man, I'm talking to you. Now, are mothers excluded from this? Obviously not. I just think that he needed for us guys to get our attention caught. We tend to be the no-shows, oftentimes, not always in life. And so he goes right to the dads here. But we can generalize it as well to parents. He says, dads, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, 28 years ago, when Jordan was born, and if I hadn't known anything about the Bible or God's word, and I wanted to be a dad that raised this kid up to be one of these beautiful people that we read about that God inspires for us to be, that are humble and gentle and patient and loving, I might have asked you, where is it in this big book called the Bible that God gives me very practical instructions on how to be a good dad? And you likely would have taken me to this verse, and I would have read it. Jared, don't exasperate Jordan, but bring him up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And I would look to you and I would say, and... And you'd say, no, that's it. I'd say, really? I've never been a dad. I don't have a practice run. After a few years, I'm going to be done with it. And this is what God left me with? This is the verse? Yeah, that's the verse. Let's unpack it for just a minute. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. That word's just fun to say, isn't it? Exasperate. Means to infuriate, just to make angry, to deeply frustrate. Can you believe that sometimes the attitude that your kids give you, the rolling of the eyes, actually wasn't precipitated by them but you? Can you imagine just the possibility, just the theoretical possibility of that? <laughs> We've all been kids. We understand what it's like to be exasperated by parents. We don't want to necessarily, but just wear the kid out in frustration. 
He starts with the negative side. Don't exasperate your children. It's possible to do that. It's possible to do it by inconsistency. The kid just really doesn't know what the rules are today. It may be by hypocrisy. I live one way, I talk another way. And what the kid hears is, don't do what I do, do what I say. That's exasperating. Or maybe it's by being too harsh, where the emotion of the parent spills over into behaviors that just are not related to what's appropriate to the kid at the moment in their next best step in training. Exasperate. He starts by saying, don't exasperate your children. And then he gives us three very practical, positive things to do. First, do train them. Teaching a specific skill or bring them up. Bringing them up and nurture them and paying attention and being active and being proactive This isn't parenting by default, where in the busyness of life, I just get up in the morning, kids go off to school, the day gets done, and I hope things didn't go well, and if they did, they're going to pay for it. This is engaged. It's proactive. Bring them up. Everybody's apart. And bring them up by training them, providing instruction on specific skills or behavior. And the next do is do instruct them. Actually break it down into the next steps. So it's not, kid, go do that, but it's let me show you how to do that. And here's the first step, and the second step, and the third step, and this is how daddy and mommy do that. Don't exasperate, but bring them up, train them, instruct them, and the last one is, would you say it with me? Of the Lord. Wow. Now, that's the qualifying phrase that gives us hope. Before that qualifying phrase, I don't know where to go to figure out what to train them in and what to instruct them about. Isn't it true as parents? We have 360 degrees of options. It's like a big pie. So I can go out on the internet and I can find a parental guru here and I can get a good book there and I can understand what this child development psychologist believes and I can talk to a group of my friends and I can look back either with positivity or negativity on the modeling of my own parents. Where do I possibly go to find out what I am to train and instruct in? Where do we as a church, a community of faith, go to figure out what it is that we're doing to create an environment here, near, and far for the kids that we're called to love and serve? And here it is, of the Lord. It's a narrow slice of the pie of possibilities. It's the slice that's labeled of the Lord. And when children are raised in this environment of the Lord, it creates this transformational place that increases the likelihood that they're going to become these people that God created them to be which was defined in chapter 4, verse 1, these people that are completely humble and gentle and patient and loving. Oh, period. Could you tell I'm kind of into this? I kind of like it. Could you tell it all? I, uh, I only wish for my kids that they would have had a brilliant dad, and they didn't. But I'm a grandpa, so our grandkids are really going to benefit from this. 
going to invite you to flip the page over because there's some fun things we're going to take a look at. The second page actually is answering the question, what does it mean of the Lord? And what we're going to do is we're going to take a look back at Ephesians chapter 4 and part of 5, which is where God parents us. And then in chapter 5, he says, I want you to follow my example and discover the characteristics of God that we would call values, which really is what he parents us in and which forms the basis for our raising and training kids. But before we take a look at a few of those, I want you to notice over on the left-hand side, there's a classic two-by-two box. It's formed by a vertical and a horizontal uh, axes. On the vertical, vertical axis is the word don't. And you'll notice that the arrows get progressively uh, darker as you go toward from bottom to top. This is the parenting that is on the don't side of life and progressively gets more and more don't. The horizontal axis is do. And you'll notice that it gets progressively stronger as you go from left to right. And in a classic two by two, you end up with four quadrants. And we're asking the question today, what kind of parent are you? We're also going to discover what kind of parent God is. And so we're going to know what all of us are aspiring toward as we help raise kids. In the lower left-hand box is the word neglect. It's the neglectful parents. Notice that the neglectful parents is low on don't and low on do. There's just very little context or environment about what not to do and what to do in life. Some of you may have been raised by neglectful parents. And as an adult, as you've looked back, it dawned on you that they may have done the best they could. It maybe wasn't all you needed, but you've given them some excuses because they didn't know better. Some of us are there. There's also the possibility, however, of being a neglectful parent because I just don't show up even though I did know better. Many of us in our scripture reading this week, as we've been going through the Soap Journal, read about the transition in leadership in the Old Testament from King David to King Solomon. And there's a really old dead guy's name that pops up in the middle of that story. His name is Eli. Eight generations before, he was the high priest of the entire nation. Eli knew better. He may have been the most spiritual man in his generation, and he was the most well-informed person about the ways of God. And as an individual, he was an outstanding person and leader. But he was a neglectful parent. In fact, as you read the story, he didn't bother to give his sons the don't do this in life, do do this in life. And they grew up to be very different people than he was. Far from being gentle and patient and humble and loving. They were selfish and they were impure and they were demanding and they were arrogant. So that when women would come to worship at the tabernacle, his sons, priests, would have sex with them. When the men would bring the best animals from their herds, they would kill them and take the best cuts of beef for themselves and give the leftovers and sacrifice to God. They were horrible young men. And God said to Eli, I won't, 
I won't give your sons as priests for this nation. I'm going to withdraw from your family the right to serve in this role for eight generations. That's why the name shows up years later. He was a parent by neglect on purpose. Let's take a look at the second one, and it's the lower right-hand box, and it's the aspirational parent. This is where we express the right things to do but we avoid talking about the other side, which are the things to avoid doing. Now, I'm a boomer, and uh, our kids are uh, right on the edge of Gen X and, <clears throat> and millennials. Uh, many of you uh, that are here today that have kids at home are Gen X and some millennials, and, and you were raised by boomer parents. And we brought a wonderful thing to American culture and society. We brought a lot of horrible things, but one of the wonderful things we brought was aspirational positive psychology and parenting. You know how it was if you grew up as a soccer player? You know what it took to get a trophy, don't you? Two things. Show up and have a pulse. Right. It's aspirational. It's all on the, you are great. You can be anything you want to be. It is in you, baby. Good job. Even when it's horrible. Good job. And it's so skewed toward the do that it leaves the child with ambivalence and uncertainty about what the boundary is on the other side of what not to do. The stove is hot. Don't touch the stove. And leaving it up to a generation to touch the stove and get burned later in life. The aspirational parent. Let's go to the other extreme. It's the upper left-hand box. It's the authoritarian parent where the list of do's is really well-defined. We talk, excuse me, the don'ts. We talk a lot in the authoritarian family about the don'ts. Don't I, don't let me ever catch you doing that. We never say that word in our family. That is not something that this family does. And if the authoritarian parent, it's all about the don'ts, leaving uncertainty about what should I do in life. And that kind of home environment is often a fear-based environment. Often starting with the fear of parents who look back on their earlier years and understand that they've done dumb and stupid and harmful things, and now their own fears for their children cause them to be very clear with their kids about what their kids are never going to do. But that fear actually is passed on to the kids as well, and they grow up in an environment really not knowing what to do, but being very clear about what not to do and understanding that there sometimes are very severe ramifications of doing things that I'm not supposed to do, all of these first three models of parenting are obviously deficient, aren't they? Neglect or just aspirational or just authoritarian, which leaves us with the box in the upper right-hand corner, which is the loving parenting box. This is where we find God's parenting. He's very clear about both sides of the coin. I have here a quarter. The quarter has tails on one side. It has heads on the other side. A coin without one of the sides wouldn't exist, wouldn't it? It's a physical impossibility. But because it has two sides, and let's call it the negative side or the don't side or the positive side, the do side, because it has two sides, it has substance and we say that it has value. This is a quarter. It's worth about a quarter of a dollar, which by the way is worth a lot less than it was a few years ago when I was a kid. But it has value because it has substance formed by two sides. 
When we look at Ephesians chapter 4 and the first part of chapter 5, the perfect parent, God, is giving us eight huge values in life that reflect his character and give meaning to life. And it's how he parents us. And in answer of the question, what does of the Lord mean? This is where we discover the meaning. Now, I'm going to talk with you very quickly about the eight as we go through. Let's take a little bit more time on the first one by way of illustration. The first value is honesty. And you'll notice the two sides of the coin. On the one side, it's don't lie. And on the other side, it's do tell the truth. Notice it as I read. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor because we are all one body. Don't lie. Do tell the truth. I had a rather awkward experience in the 9 o'clock service. Our son was here. Talk about awkward. I'm talking like an expert on parenting, and my son is sitting in the service. <laughs> it's only slightly less awkward for those of you who have students sitting with you today that are going to do this test for you too. So I share your pain. I ask myself the question, as it relates to my parenting and now as a grandparent and as a part of this community that helps other parents raise their kids, which side of the, what kind of parent am I? By neglect, does that my tendency to just not show up in this value of honesty, talking about lying and the, the, the pain of lying on one hand and the joy of telling the truth on the other? Am I an aspirational parent? Is my tendency more to default toward the talking about don't lie? Or am I loving where my kid or kids around me tend to hear both about the devil is the father of lies. God is truthful and God never lies. And when we lie, it always harms us and others because it tears us apart. Integrity means we're whole people and wholeness always requires that we tell the truth. That's why we don't lie. What we do do is we always tell the truth. We do that because Jesus said the truth always sets free, even when it's hard. We tell the truth because God is truthful and he is dependable because of that. And like our Father God, we always tell the truth. Now, when I take number one, which relates to honesty, the first value, I go over to the four boxes with my pen and I ask myself, which of the four boxes most represented the kind of parent I am as it relates to that value? Hmm. Where do you think I put it? Any guesses out there? Pardon? Right in the middle. Oh, Steve, thank you for mentioning right in the middle. Not an option. <laughs> I put it on aspirational. I'm a boomer. I'm a soccer dad. Give him the trophy, baby. So the kids heard an awful lot about telling the truth. But I wasn't as explicit as I just was with you about talking on the don't lie piece of it. I learned something about myself. Go ahead right now and put your number one in one of the four boxes. If you're a parent, it's easy for you to have a point of view. I have been told by some parents, however, that they actually needed to have two of these or three of these because they parent different kids differently. Yeah? And if you're not currently a parent, or you're a sibling or your aunt or an uncle and have a different relationship, 
Where do you find yourself in talking with kids around you often falling? Are you ready? Let's do the second one, generosity. Notice what it says in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Here it is. Don't steal. Do share. The don't and the do that are associated with the value of generosity. So the instruction around don't steal is in a context of because we are generous, we are never takers, we are always givers. Give yourself an assessment and take number two and put it in one of the boxes. Where do you think you land as it relates to the value of generosity? And as you do, let's move on to three helpful words. I love this verse in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those that listen. So it's don't use hurtful words. Use healing words. And why is this value of Helpful words so important because we share God's nature. We were created in his likeness and image. And when God speaks, creation happens. And when we speak, powerful things happen. And as the Proverbs say, it's either death or it's life that happens. And so we're a family that uses helpful speech when we talk. What kind of parents are you? Put number three over in one of the boxes. And number four, forgiveness. I love these two verses. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, <laughs> along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate toward one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. The value of forgiveness. Don't Hold grudges. Do extend forgiveness. Where are you in the modeling of not grudge holding but forgiveness extending? And where are you in the training and instruction of the young people around you as it relates to this wonderful characteristic of God of forgiveness? Number five, kindness, comes from the same two verses. It says, don't be mean. <laughs> Did your mama ever tell you that? Don't be mean. Be kind. I paraphrase the two verses. Get rid of all the ugly attitudes, all the grudges that are held, all the bitterness that can be nursed, all of the I'm going to get back to you for that, and replace it instead with being kind and compassionate for one another. Because forgiveness is exactly how God relates to us in Christ. Don't be mean. Be kind. Where are you placing number five in your boxes there? Which brings us to number six, which is purity. Notice in chapter five, verse three, it says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Don't be immoral do 
be pure. One of the reasons here as a church that we talk about things that we fight about, which includes kids and money and sex. And this summer, as we move into a series in a few weeks in the book of Proverbs, it'll give us plenty of opportunities to talk about sexuality. Why is it that on Wednesday nights at Ignite here, the program for uh, students where well over 100 kids come from Evergreen and Glencoe and other junior highs and high schools for a five and a half hour after school program each week. And in these last weeks of the school year, our student ministries pastor Kevin is doing a series on sex. Why is it as a church that we give the kind of attention we do to sexuality? Well, primarily because God does. I mean, the Bible is an R-rated book, as you know. Apparently, it's very important to him, this beautiful gift that he's provided for us. And of course, it can always be so horribly abused and creating so much pain and anguish and suffering in people's lives. And so he says, don't be immoral, but be pure. It was just uh, last Wednesday night or the week before that uh, one of the young women, the students who comes on Wednesdays was so excited because she had gotten a brand new phone. Phone. And she, like many of the kids who come, her only context in her life and training of the Lord is here for five and a half hours on Wednesday night. And she was so excited because she was showing off her new phone, which wouldn't be unusual for a junior high kid. And she has had a phone for several years. But I think you'll understand why she wanted to celebrate when you hear what she said. Look at my new phone, she said. This is the first phone I've had since I was in the fourth grade that doesn't have porn on it. That's what our friend said, 13 years old. It's not that our kids are growing up in a society that's unprecedented in terms of its misuse of sexuality, but it is that our kids are growing up in a culture with unprecedented access to information through instant media, and that's what makes their environment different from any other in the history of the earth, of course we talk about impurity and purity and sexuality because God is intensely interested, this beautiful gift that he's given for pleasure, for expressions of love and for procreation to be benefiting with the joy that he intended and not the pain that is so often suffered by so many. God talks to us about purity, which leads us to gratitude as you find your place in the box there for number six. But number seven is gratitude. It says this, nor should there be any obscenity or foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. That's interesting to me. The value is gratitude. The don't is don't curse. The do is give thanks. Do you see how the two are related? They come out of the value of gratitude. What's the opposite of giving thanks? When I'm ticked off, it's to invoke a curse or an obscenity. Linguists who have studied obscenities in different cultures have discovered that in almost every culture, the language that's used for cursing and speaking obscenities come around invoking a deity, God, damn, you, invoking a deity to come and bringing a curse on a person or the thing that's created the irritation in me, or secondly, scatological terminology, or third, sexual terminology. And what the Apostle Paul says, out of this base of gratitude, which 
is God's character, expression of thanksgiving and our response to him. That kind of language is the polar opposite. Now, in the authoritarian home, it may sound like this. Don't let me ever catch you using that word in this house. And by the way, that's not a bad thing to say, and it's not a bad way to say it to the right kid that's the right age and in the right setting, as long, of course, as you don't use that word in the house. That, that one goes back to the neglect of hypocrisy, doesn't it? Sure. But we say to the kid, we don't use those words in our family because, because we're a grateful family, and we express thanksgiving. And like the Apostle Paul said, we're not thankful for everything that happens. There's a lot of lousy, malevolent, painful, crummy, death kind of stuff that happens in life. But with the Apostle Paul, we say, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We are a grateful family. We don't say these things, but we do say these things. Where do you find yourself landing in the two-by-two boxes with number seven? As we wrap it up with number eight, spirituality. I love this one. It's fun. I'll read it. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And I've given there the definition, excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Have you ever puzzled a little bit about this verse with me, it's like, I get the thing of don't get wasted. I get the thing about being filled with the Spirit. Did you really mean to put those in the same sentence? Are, did, are these thoughts related that closely that they need to be in a compound sentence? Of course they do. Because the value that they're coming from is the value of being truly spiritual. This is how it works. God has made us spirit first and soul, our mind and our emotions and our bodies with the five physical senses and all of that being together is a beautiful expression of God's creation in his likeness and image, spirit, soul, and body. The problem is that we were all designed for the spirit to be the dominant part so that the spirit part of us dominates and tells and coordinates the human soul what to do. We make choices then about how we're going to think. And the thoughts that we think often help direct the kinds of emotions that we feel. And then our soul instructs our body in how it's going to behave itself based upon the decisions that we've made. We were all born with the capacity for spirit, soul, and body, but we were all born with the spirit part of us empty and void because sin has separated all of us from that intimate experience and relationship with God. The sin problem is resolved for us by God in Jesus Christ. And as we celebrated with Donald in the identification with the death of Jesus and his resurrection, now to live for us, to give forgiveness to us. And as we receive that gift of forgiveness, that spirit void in you is filled for the first time. You become alive there, Paul says in Romans. And when you become alive in your spirit, we then ask for the Holy Spirit to continually fill us. In fact, the tenses here in the Greek language are be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And so we invite his presence in our life. We invite his fullness in our life. We invite his baptism in our life to saturate us and to cover us so that we are filled with the Spirit, which is the opposite pole of getting wasted. If Paul were to write in this culture, he might have written it under Holy Spirit inspiration a little bit different. I think he would have had to have a longer verse. He wouldn't have just talked about wine. For example, and he's not picking on wine. In fact, in that culture, it was used frequently. And Paul, in fact, later as he writes to Timothy, his protege, recommends for him the use of wine medicinally for his stomach. Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding, and he turned water into wine. However, some of us are families that choose to have dry homes. That's not because there's their prohibition against the use of alcohol. It's because the law of love is always the highest law. And out of love, some of us have made those decisions. But the point is, if the Apostle Paul were writing today, he would probably have to say, uh, in addition to not getting drunk on wine, well, by the way, you'd have to have a longer list for dunk. You know, bombed and stoned and high and wasted and buzzed and whatever the list would be. Don't do that. And whether it's a depressant or a stimulant or a hallucinogenic or whatever else you would ingest, don't do that. And why don't we do that? Because it leads to debauchery or dissipation. We were designed to be controlled by the Spirit. And when we alter the state of the human soul, debauchery gives undue opportunity for the sensual senses of the body to make decisions about how you're going to behave. And some of us have our own stories of how bad the behavior can be. In fact, the group behavior can be pretty bad because we are giving over control to an altered state of mind, which is the opposite of being led by and filled with the Spirit. And so he says to us, I want you to be in control. In fact, as Paul writes to the churches of Galatia, you can check it later in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, he lists nine behavioral expressions of what the result of the Holy Spirit in our life looks like. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. And the ninth of those is self-control. You are never more in control than when you are being freshly filled with God's Spirit. You are never more spiritual than when you're being filled with the Spirit. And so as we parent kids, we say to them, our family does not use ingested chemical substances in ways that lead us to being out of control because we are people of the Spirit and people that receive his fullness. And if you read on with the text, it describes a variety of group behaviors that we do together when we're truly spirit-filled that always end up being glorifying to God and helpful to one another. Well, here we are. Jamie, we're at the end of this deal. How do we do? Isn't it great to be a grandpa? Because you can just kind of bump the kids to your left there and say, listen up, you guys. I love giving this talk as a grandpa. It's working really well for me. I want you to know. There we go. How'd you do when you checked the boxes today? And even if it was a little hard because you're not a parent or you had a little bit of a struggle with it, where we wrap things up today with these four questions has to do with the truth that God was speaking to all of us today. This is how he parents you and me. When I went through the list, I have to tell you that they didn't all end up in the loving box. I'm on my way, just like you are. 
We're in an environment of transportation. But as the questions come up, ask these questions of yourself. Who is it that you're helping raise now? Maybe kids in your home, maybe grandkids, maybe extended family, maybe a part of this community. It may be the places in the community like Mooberry or others where you, where you uh, volunteer time. It may be in children's ministries here. Who are the shorter people that are looking up to you and watching your life? And the thoughtful question of how does your life teach each of these qualities? And where is it that you might be growing forward this next week because you've discovered today that you're lagging behind in one or more of those? How was it that you'll show up in different, more thoughtful ways and train and instruct a little more effectively? And then the question that we always end with, always end with in some form or another, is the question of, is this your day to receive God's grace and become his child? This whole talk about parenting may be helpful at some level, but the real point of God's word to us today is that he is the perfect parent. And regardless of how young or old you are, regardless of how well you have or haven't done in life, you join the great group of all of the rest of us of desperately needing God's forgiveness and fresh start in life for the fullness of his spirit to come and to fill you. And as I pray and lead in this closing prayer today, this may be your day to take my words and make them your own and to receive his great gift of forgiveness